Hey, everybody. Welcome to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. John Suntress here. Very excited about today's show. Uh, one of the deans of sketch comedy from the 60s and 70s, making amazing albums, creating incredible radio, Phil Proctor of the Firesign Theater. Now, you may not know the name, but you know some of his roles. Uh, he's the drunk French monkey in Dr. Doolittle. He plays Howard DeVille on all the Rugrats cartoons, films, and the spin-off show, of course, All Grown Up. He's been doing a lot of uh, voiceover work in the last few years, but today's conversation focuses mainly on the Fireside Theater because they were really a big part of subversive sketch comedy in the 1960s and the 1970s, and their influence continued after, uh, well, I guess they continued as the Fireside Theater, but also two of the members, uh, Phil and uh, Peter Bergman would team up as Proctor and Bergman. They have their own body of comedy albums and television uh, spots, uh, things like TV or Not TV from the mid-'70s. My favorite fire science theater bit, uh, The Adventures of Nick Danger, Third Eye, uh, was such a delightful thing that we even did it at our uh, college. Sorry, Phil, we didn't, we didn't pay your royalties, but uh, we did it at Illinois State for a radio production project because... They were so inspirational. Uh, they would do the technology tricks that rock bands were doing in the uh, 60s with psychedelic music. They were doing it with comedy. And because of that, they were considered kind of subversive and didn't get as many network TV shots. NPR certainly did a lot of work with them over the years. If you're unaware of the Fireside Theater's work, I wanted to give you a taste of their comedy. This is from a very funny bit, The Tale of the Giant Rat of Sumatra, featuring uh, Phil as the great detective. Our labors now completed, the great detective Hemlock Stones and I, his patient doctor and biographer, returned directly to our dodgings at 99 Bakersfield Street. Thankful that for tonight at least, Londoners might sleep forever under a comforting blanket of thick English industrial fog. Oh. Oh, splendid. Oh, that's it, Stones. The adventure of the swollen sock. Quite commercial there. Lead it up, old bean. Yes, it takes care of last month's rent, too, well, you see. By the by, have uh, we eaten up all those old beans, Flotsam? I'm famished. Go rat about in the cupboard and see, old man. Yes, I'll give it the old army. Try, we've been gone, you know. Probably spoiled. Hmm. Hello, what's this? This solution's turning blue. Not quite the solution I expected. That means the rat should have lived and the captain should have died, of course. Let's see. Norveticus ratus, Norveticus assis, mammalia, rotentiae meridae. Here we are, this black and brown. Eats electricity. The rat's gotten to everything but this half tin of Uncle Sigmund's Peruvian cocoa powder. That'll be all right. Did you know, Flotsam, that if rats were the size of English children, they could wipe us out in a week? Shocking. Oh, I don't want to hear that. Here's your coat. Oh, thank you, Milk, uh, sugar? No, no, I'll take it straight. I'll just have some tea if you don't mind. The body of work that the Fireside Theater produced is being archived by the Library of Congress. Uh, Phil asks us not to mention that, so uh, we didn't. And uh, you might hear it come up in the interview, but uh, rightfully so. I mean, these are comedians, comedians. You know, if you uh, if you talk to some people my age and stuff, then maybe a little bit older, everyone will smile because... In a lot of ways, they were the daily show of their time and uh, would talk about uh, the relevant culture wars. Uh, and, and, of course, because of that, kind of like the talk with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar we just had, I really was interested in what uh, Phil thought about what's going on today compared to uh, the, the nonsense that he had to deal with in the 60s. 
So this is a great conversation, a guy who's really lived a life. Phil has come out with an autobiography called Where's My Fortune Cookie? It's available on Amazon and so worth reading. This is a guy who really was experiencing the 60s like, you know, you should. And uh, it really had a, an amazing time. Documents, hanging out with Peter Fonda. You're going to hear some uh, pretty amazing stories. Uh, Brandon DeWild, the uh, kid from Shane. Uh, come back, Shane, come back. Well, uh, Phil hung out with him as an adult. Uh, and uh, there's some pretty funny stories about him and uh, Peter Fonda, the three of them hanging out. But also... Uh, God, you know, he uh, he really was friends with so many of uh, the people of the rock and roll era right during that summer of love period. Really predating it by a couple of years. Uh, Fireside Theater, they started the first love in. You're going to hear about that in the conversation. So this is a guy who really did live life and uh, has survived to talk about it in very humorous ways. Where's My Fortune Cookie? The autobiography of Phil Proctor. Uh, we talked to Phil on today's Word Balloon. It's all brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners. Thank you very much, for, League, for your support. Um, you know, honestly, in a, in a sort of secondhand way, uh, I think uh, the League has helped me out because it's put me on some uh, PR lists. Going to the conventions and getting on the press list has put me on some press release uh, lists and allowed me to make contact with uh, people that not only get me interesting comic book guests, but also film and television guests and people from the world of comedy. It was just a year ago that I spoke to Tony Hendra of uh, National Lampoon, and uh, this conversation with Phil is kind of in that same realm. And it's because of, uh, you know, again, being able to go to these conventions, and uh, the people that help uh, make it happen are the League of Word Balloon listeners. Thank you very much for your support. Just came back from New York. I uh, had some more new contacts, and I'm looking forward to some of the uh, guests that I will be presenting to you in the weeks and months ahead. And that's all because of uh, being able to travel and, uh, you know, make it happen, especially right now when I'm uh, between full-time jobs, thanks to the League of Word Balloon listeners. If you'd like to subscribe to Word Balloon, you can do that via Patreon. If you go to patreon.com slash wordballoon, or right there on the front page of wordballoon.com, there's an ad. Click on the ad there. It will take you directly to my Patreon page. Do you think Word Balloon is worth the price of a comic each month? Do I give you that much entertainment? I hope so. Uh, but if you think it's worth your while, you can uh, subscribe to Word Balloon by going to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash wordballoon, or click on the Patreon ad right there on the front page of wordballoon.com. Thank you very much, League of Word Balloon listeners. Okay, without further ado, I want to get into this uh, wonderful conversation with Phil Proctor talking about uh, sketch comedy of the 60s and 70s. Album comedy, man. I know that comedians, you know, still make CDs and albums, but there was something about that big hunk of vinyl and opening the uh, the uh, you know album art, uh, not only the cover art but the art inside. And Fireside was a classic example of that. Uh, it's uh, if this is your introduction to the Fireside Theater, uh, start hunting around because their stuff is everywhere. Of course, also you can buy their stuff at FiresideTheater.com. And uh, also planetproctor.com for Phil's specific work. But uh, it is just a delight for me to have this opportunity to speak to uh, one of my comedy heroes. Here's Phil Proctor on Word Balloon. Phil Proctor, I was worried that the uh, blinking lights wouldn't work for me, but everything's to be, see, everything seems to be recording now. Welcome Sorry. to Word Balloon. It's a pleasure that, to talk to you. Thank you very much. It's a, a pleasure to be talked to. Oh, sorry. Are you sure everything's working okay there? Huh? <laughs> I'd expect no less. That's fantastic. Hey, I, truly, I, I've, I've been a fan since discovering the Fire Sign Theater well into your guys' run, unfortunately. I was, it was uh, in the early 80s. And, uh -huh. uh, you know, it was your guys' kind of comedy 
that when I got out of school, I was really hoping jobs like that would still exist in radio because there was yourselves, the credibility gap, the committee, um, you know, Python in, in Britain and stuff. And it, yeah. I, in yep. Chicago, we had the usual suspects that uh, came out of Second City and they were doing sketch comedy on the radio. I was really hoping that uh, this was going to be a thriving industry when I when I got out of school. Oh, um, yeah. Good luck. <laughs> The the Firesign Theater always said radio is a heartbreak, okay? Because uh, it's it's really uh, one of it's a little bit like theater. It's like an amazing invalid, you know, or or invalid if you pronounce it a little differently. Uh, We we, uh, went from listener supported radio on KPFK, where the Firesign Theater actually started on Peter Bergman's Radio Friage show, Mm -hmm. uh, the first counterculture call-in talk show uh, ever uh, from 10 to 2 every morning, more or less every morning, without morals every morning. And uh, and then we went to commercial radio. We went to KRLA, commercial radio, uh, and we did a live show called The Magic Mushroom there, where it was really kind of uh, an early version of, of, of the parlor show, uh, Perry Home Companion, okay? Peter would interview a musician uh, like... Uh, uh, Mama Cass or David Crosby, they play some songs or a yeah, band even. And then the Firesign Theater would improvise as experts on something in a panel. And then we do a skit or, or two. We do like a goon type show. Sure, if anybody sure. knows the goon shows that inspired us. Uh, uh, and, you know, with stand up microphones. And it was all in front of a live audience. And uh, it was on, you know, every every weekend. So that was a great thing. But then that came to an end also. And uh, Peter went back on to kind of more of a traditional broadcast thing with Radio Free Oz. But we would – okay. One, one day we were going to do this uh, – we were going to introduce the pilot of a long-running serial called Nick Danger Third Eye. All right. And we go out to the station that we were working on then. I don't know. KPPC or K Piss on Me. I don't know what it was called. <laughs> All right. We drive out to the station Sunday afternoon to get ready to do the show. And we, and we found that our keys didn't work anymore. They changed the locks. Insane. The station had gone from, you know, talk rock radio to Hasidic country western. <laughs> so overnight, they just changed the management of the station. And that's where we said radio is a heartbreak. But that's why Nick Danger Third Eye ended up on the flip side of our record. How can you be in two places at once when you're not anywhere at all? (laughs) Because radio was like that for us. How can you be in two places at once when you're not anywhere at all? That, you know, from your perspective, that's where we were. And in this instance, we weren't anywhere at all because they locked us out. But but ironically, the Nick Danger piece, which we then adopted for for recording, uh, became our most accessible piece because it was a parody of detective noir dramas and radio shows, right? Yep. So more, more people could kind of say, "Oh, I see what these guys are doing." You know, they're taking a traditional form and they're bending it out. You know, they're 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 smoking pot and then reading the scripts. <laughs> Quite as easy as that, folks. But but I think that that it made people kind of go like, "This is really funny stuff. It's surreal. It's crazy. It's wacky." But at least we know what it's grounded on. You know, they could they could understand the reality that we were making fun of. And of course, so many of our other albums, uh, 
were grounded on wonderful realities. But like like uh, Don't Crush That Dwarf, Hand Me the Pliers, which became our <laughs> another one of you know our biggest sellers, was basically about television. Yes. And we and, yeah, and we invented the idea of channel surfing, click 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 click, going from one place to another to tell a long form story. See, and then uh, I think we're all bozos on this bus. Was a computer, uh, yeah. a predictive, yeah, a predictive album about the computer world, and uh, you know, during the course of our conversation, I can tell you some more secrets about these albums and how they influence the culture. But actually, come to think of it, it was because of "Don't Crush That Dwarf, Hand Me the Pliers," which was inducted into the Library of Congress historical recording, no, historical recordings, okay, along with Martha and the Vandellas. And, and Jimi Hendrix catalog, we were flown down for a ceremony. This was during the Bush administration, the worst president. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> Not anymore. Exchange. Okay. <laughs> yes, but, sir. And, and the reason that I'm in New York right now, besides promoting my book, Where's My Fortune Cookie, mm -hmm. available now on Amazon, you know. <laughs> there we go. Uh, uh, is because uh, David Osman and I, the Firestone Theater, or what's left of it, were asked to perform at the Library of Congress Coolidge Theater uh, Thursday the 28th, evening of Thursday the 28th, to a sold-out audience of over 500 people. And uh, and that was uh, in order to kind of uh, to uh, announce, although they haven't done it yet, that they have acquired our archives. Wow. Okay. All right. So the Fireside Theater's archives have been acquired by the Library of Congress, but we can't talk about it yet because we're going to wait until there's a formal announcement. So don't tell anybody. No, it's just between you and no one's listening to this. This is just fun. Between me and a million other people. Yes. And uh, that's right. And and yet, nonetheless, it's it was very, very exciting. And it was a wonderful opportunity to meet, you know, Washington fans and New York fans. Gosh, people came from uh, far and wide, I think, you know, Hoboken to come and see us it, it was great it was a great deal of fun and another aspect of of what fireside theater meant over our 50-year career <sighs> but who's counting you know uh the fact that people stayed with us and well they're still alive i mean that's a that's a good thing yes so, you know, it was a lot of fun but anyway i talked enough uh thanks very much it was great talking with you goodbye absolutely no this was great uh great validation and and oh. well deserved absolutely man you guys were groundbreakers and i love the fact that clearly and this is something that you know as i get older i'm fascinated by the comedy album era and and yeah. you, and you guys mm -hmm. were innovators and much like the musicians of your period that you were very you know familiar with intimate with uh, you were innovators of sound in sketch comedy in the same way that they were uh, twisting the knobs on their music and adding layers and levels of sound that just right. wasn't thought of before. That's right. Now, we, uh, when we got together on Radio Free Oz, the four, four fire signs, I'm a Leo, two Sagittarians, and an Aries, Phil Austin, David Osman, Peter Bergman, and myself – uh, Peter and I had worked together at Yale. He'd written the lyrics for a couple of musicals that I'd starred in. Uh, Booth is Back in Town and Tom Jones, written by Austin Pendleton, whom I'll be having dinner with tonight. Uh, okay. And then we, we met up again when he was the Wizard of Oz doing the Radio Free Oz show. And we uh, we started improvising together, all of us. And discovered because we all loved radio. We had radio in common. We had surrealism in common because we loved the goon shows. Yes. You know, 
and if anybody doesn't know the goon shows, Google them and listen to them. They will still blow your mind. They just, you know, they did the most wonderful, yep, preformed radio stuff, right? Right. We can't we can't hide the names, uh, Peter Sellers and, and Spike Mulligan. And you and forgive me, you tell me the other two goons, Harry and uh, Harry Seacum. That's right. Uh, Spike Milligan, right? Okay, the Irishman, a Peter Sellers, and then there was another guy, the fat guy. But I can't, I can't Google him oh, now because I'm looking at your picture on Skype. But you know, if you check out the Google, shows, you'll see. And they all did the most extraordinary voices and characters, crazy, way out, far out stuff. And that inspired us. Uh, and later, it inspired, of course, the uh, the, the Monty Python boys. Absolutely. You know, who, who, when I've talked to them and hung out with them, they, we all had that in common. And it was a wonderful bonding uh, 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 source for our surrealistic, crazy comedy. That was what was great was you guys were all at different parts of the world. I, you know, Alan Moore, the, the yeah. wonderful uh, writer, talked about how the steam, steam engine was, was invented in, like, you know, Fulton did it here, but there was an Italian you know, over there doing the same thing. And it was just in the zeitgeist that everybody kind of, it, it, you know, gravitated to the same ideas and went to the same places. So it's kind of neat. And, and I'm really happy to hear that it sounds like, you know, you're friendly with the Pythons. Oh, yeah, yeah. But the thing about, as you, as you expressed, what the fire sign did was we wanted to bring the, uh, the power, the energy, the magic of radio, of audio, of uh, uh, movies for the mind uh, to the modern era, into the, into the modern century. And we, luckily enough, were given a contract, spoken arts contract, that gave us unlimited studio time. Wow. Okay? So we could write material, go in, record it, uh, listen to it, go back, write some more, go to the studio, write some more, and, until we were satisfied that we could finish the album and and that's an, that was an amazing freedom that we had plus as you suggested we had at our fingertips all of the uh, instrumentation and the the uh, technology of rock and roll music of being able to overdub yeah. uber dubbing yeah. uber alles as we called it uh, you know and to add layers of things and background voices and music and atmosphere and sound effects which at our leisure more or less you know and we designed ways of recording in the studio at, at Columbia uh, we were actually recording in converted old radio studios which was even more magical uh, and we were able to design uh, 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 because of the size of some of these studios long takes where we could actually walk from one microphone to the other, you know, to finish the scene if we needed to. It, it, we had amazing liberty to create things. And we were constantly inspired by the innovations of the Beatles, right? Yeah. yeah. Because they, under George Martin's uh, directorialship production uh, uh, genius, they were also layering their albums and, and expanding their ability to tell a story and a song in, in the most extraordinary psychedelic and surrealistic ways. So they were great uh, inspiration for us, and that's why we make references to the, the Beatles in many of our albums. <laughs> Especially I remember in, in Nick Danger, Third Eye, and Cuckoo Cachoo, and, and you were Rocky, were you Rocky Raccoon or Rocky Rococo? I was Rocky Rococo. Yes. And so far as I know, I think Rocky Raccoon, Rocky Raccoon came out after Rocky Rococo, although I, they didn't know of us until later when they uh, were in America. I ran across uh, 
I, I had a brief encounter with John Lennon in uh, Los Angeles once, and I gave him a Papoon for President Not Insane button, <laughs> which you will see, uh, you know, in one of their bed sit-ins sit that they did. Yes. Uh, he's wearing the Papoon Not Insane button. <laughs> <laughs> That's outstanding. Yeah. But I told them how we were, inspired we were by them. And by that point, uh, they they were beginning to know who we were because we were called the jesters of the rock generation. We were making fun of the seriousness of the anti-Vietnam War movement and, and the youth liberation movement that was happening at the time so that people would, wouldn't take themselves so horribly seriously that they weren't able to stay in touch with their humanity and to communicate, you know, more lightheartedly with everybody else that was involved in the movement. Understood. And in uh, Where's My Fortune Cookie, there are encounters and uh, the uh, experiences you had, not just with uh, the rest of Firesign Theater, but also your own film career. And, uh, hell, you uh, even were on uh, early soap opera, or I, I should say yeah. early video soap opera in terms of The Edge of Night, which, uh, yeah. you know, yeah, you had, a, you, had a, you had kind of a juvenile delinquent role on that show. Yeah, that's interesting that you mentioned that, John, because I was, I, I was a Yale boy. I, I graduated from Yale. Uh, I was born in Goshen, Indiana, but I was raised in Manhattan from an early uh, age. And I went to Alan Stevenson School, and I went to Riverdale Country School, right? Nice, Archie. I went to your website, and I saw the Will Elder Memorial, where he's parodying the Riverdale, uh, uh, you know, the Archie comics, right? <laughs> yep. Yeah, well, I went to that school, as did the the person who created Riverdale. So, well, it was. Riverdale Country School exists. So, anyway. That's awesome. Uh, all right, with, with all of those those uh, 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 the schooling behind me. I finally made it up to Yale, and I decided to be. Uh, well, I was a Russian major. Uh, yeah, wow. that's we I was a Russian major to the last half of my junior year because I was working in the dramat, the undergraduate dramatic association, with people in my class like Sam Waterston, wow. John Badham who uh, did Saturday Night Fever, Richard Maltby Jr., who wrote musicals on Broadway, uh, Peter Hunt, who directed uh, on Broadway, uh, and and uh, Tom Ligon and Skip Hannon and all kinds of wonderfully, wonderfully talented people. Austin Pendleton, uh, writer extraordinaire, actor, teacher, philosopher, uh, playwright. And, uh, and because of this, I got an agent from something that I did, a musical called Man Better Man, by Errol Hill, in which I played a mulatto opposite Joan Van Ark wow. and, and Dan Trevanti. You know, oh, I mean, man, from Hell Street Blues, certainly Daniel Trevanti. It was a heady time. Wow. And so I get this agent, and I, uh, I took the train down to Los Angeles, pardon Los Angeles, to New York to uh, read for the part of a juvenile delinquent on the edge of night, which was a live soap opera at that time. So I ta they taped it. It was really early in, in the, the, uh, the use of tape technology, but they videotaped my audition. And then I went down to get back on the train, and I'm walking across Grand Central Station, and I hear, Will Philip Proctor, please report to the station master's office. In the middle of Grand Central Station. <laughs> I stopped, you know. Will Philip Proctor, please. I said, okay, I'm coming, I'm coming. And and I went to the information booth in the center there, the big uh, the, uh, area, and, and they said, it's over there. And there were a bunch of 
people in conductor suits, men in conductor suits sitting at big desks. And I go over and I say, I'm Phil Proctor. And he said, call your agent. Oh, my God. So I go and I'm in the pay phone. I call my agent. And he said, and then she said, you got the job. Wow. It was like, what, an hour after I read these? This kind of thing would never happen today. You know, there would yes. there'd be a, a million suits. I'd have to sleep with Harvey Weinstein. You know what I mean? <laughs> Good timing. Yes, sir. <laughs> right? Or at least, you know, watch him take a bath or something, you know. So, <laughs> so, so anyway, I had the job. And indeed, my first job graduating from Yale, uh, before I graduated from Yale, was Julie Kurtz on the edge of night. And it was such a thrill because, you know, you had to, it was like doing an acting exercise every day and you had to learn these lines, but uh, uh, they had teleprompters. Okay. Okay. And it was all live. So the pressure that you were under was, was really kind of extraordinary. If you made a mistake, you made a mistake, you know, you'd have to learn to cover for it and everything. Uh, But I, I got contact lenses and I learned to use the teleprompters and then they went to tape. It was one of the first shows that went to tape. Okay. So, right. So I could, I could experiment, you know, if I went up on a line, I could look over at the teleprompter and I could cover it and all of this. Then I could go home and in two days I would see my performance and I'd go, oh, you couldn't tell I was reading from the teleprompter, you know, and this whole weight just fell from my shoulders. And I realized, hey, we could get away with a lot of stuff on television. You know? and, and it was it was a wonderful uh, learning process for me. And then I started doing things. So the point is, I had a very traditional introduction uh, to theater. You know, I went from that to off-Broadway and from off-Broadway to Broadway. Uh, I'm just studying Rolf in a time in uh, 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 in uh, so- Sound of Music. Wow. Okay. And, I, and, and, and Richard Rogers coached me. He coached everybody who went into that show. And I got all kinds of, of uh, summer stock work and touring work playing Rolf. Uh, all over the country uh, in the in the years to come, with all kinds of wonderful actresses like Gloria De Haven and and uh, uh, well, I, I can't even remember all their names, but it was it was a wonderful introduction to theater. And it wasn't until I did a little musical called uh, uh, The Amorous Flea, which won a lot of awards, including a Theater World Award for me that Paul Newman presented, which was such a thrill. Wow. It was, I know, amazing. And so we went out to Los Angeles. I had never been to Los Angeles before, even though my uncle, Clarence Urist, was a production assistant in the movies out there. That's how I first got to meet Jerry Lewis, by the way. No, no, I got to meet Jerry Lewis because my grade school uh, raised money and I met him. I presented the check to him on live television in New York on one of the first telethons. Oh, wow. But, yeah, but later my uncle took me on the set of one of his movies when I was out in L.A., and I ended up actually working with him on television, and then I was in one of his movies called Cracking Up. Yes. Right? Yes. Uh, that's a whole other story. But I, by the way, he always treated me with as a perfect gentleman. He was never crazy or mean to me, although I, I can't say the same for my friends who worked for him. But, you know, he was he was fine and he was fun to work with. And in any event, I was, you know, following the traditional path of theater. And I went back to do another musical called uh, Time for Singing that Alex Cohn produced on Broadway with John Hearn and all these wonderful actors. It was a wonderful experience. Uh, but 
it, it was short-lived and closed. Then I understudied Brandon DeWilda in a straight play called A Race of Harry Men by Evan Hunter. Now, Brandon, and, real fast, Brandon DeWilda, a good friend of yours, and you talk about him in the book, was yeah. uh, the blonde-haired boy in the classic Alan Ladd film Shane. Shane, come back, right? right? Shane, come back, yes. Shane. And you, in, in harm's way, where was this in context of him doing that World War II movie with John Wayne and Kirk Douglas in harm's way? He had just finished that. Okay. That's he a had, great performance, too, by the way. Yeah, yeah, that was kind of his last uh, uh, major Hollywood film. And and he wanted to reinvent himself as a singer and had taught himself to play the guitar. Because so, of the craze of, you know, the, the good-looking kind of like how Tab Hunter was able to be a singer for years and some of these well, other like, you know, certainly Frankie Avalon and then Fabian and those guys. Well, something like that. It was just that he he had this this talent, and he wanted to exploit it and kind of just break the mold uh, because music was really coming up at that time. Sure. Yeah, and we were hanging out with Graham Parsons of the International Submarine wow. Band. Yeah, you know. The East Village was really jumping. Maxis, Kansas City, was the place to be, and you know, it was it was a, a growing a subculture. Uh, that little did I know I was going to become a part of it in a little while. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But Brandon, in order to get some more movie work, he finally decided. Oh, and by the way, another strange coincidence. He had married the the, the sister of one of my classmates at Yale, all right, <laughs> whose name is Susan Maw. All right. So anyway, we drove out to California together and we connected up with Peter Fonda. I don't even remember why. And, but we were hanging with Peter Fonda. We were the three musketeers. And one day, uh, Peter was doing research. Now, here we're going to get into something which is a little little word balloonish, because Peter was doing a, a, a was working on a movie uh, called Captain uh, Captain um, Marvel. No, Captain America. Captain excuse America, me, sure. Captain America. That's what he wanted to call it. Remember, he was dressed in the American flag symbols and everything. Yes, but but the the uh, the comic book owners was it DC Comics or Marvel? It was Marvel. It was Marvel. Yeah. Yeah. They wouldn't let him use the name. All right. <laughs> so he talked, he talked to his friend Terry Southern, who wrote The Magic Christian. Yes. And Terry Southern suggested that he call it Easy Rider because an Easy Rider is a guy who's living off of a prostitute. <laughs> He's living with a prostitute and she's paying all the bills. Got it? Yep. So Easy Rider became like that was what he was looking for the Easy Ride, right? Yep. So. So anyway, wow. he was doing research on this, and and he can. <laughs> what kind of what kind of research, Phil? <laughs> no, I'll tell you. Oh yeah, well he was doing some of that research, <laughs> but you know, there was a a, a demonstration that was going to happen on the Sunset Strip uh, uh, because they wanted to impose a curfew on the young people at that time uh, who were you know sm openly smoking pot yeah. on the on the strip and and protesting the Vietnamese war and, and just doing all kinds of naughty things children shouldn't do and so we went down to protest with the thousands of other kids uh, this curfew that they wanted to impose. And they brought the, the L.A. police out and they brought the sheriff's uh, division out and, and they started the pincer movement on everybody, squeezing us all together. And we all like sat down, you know, in front of various clubs and things. And I sat down on an open copy of the L.A. Free Press and I sat down on Peter Bergman's face <laughs> I pulled this thing out from under my butt, and I, there was a picture of Peter Bergman, my classmate from Yale. And it said, 
KPFK newsman Peter Bergman interviews returning Vietnam War vets. And I said, KPFK, he's at KPFK, I got to call him. The next thing that happened was the police started beating everybody up. And the next day, I called Peter Bergman and he said, yeah, I'm the Wizard of Oz. I said, what? He said, I have a show called Radio Free Oz, which is on from 10 to 2 every day. It's the first counterculture call-in talk show. Okay, and I, he said, why don't you come down tonight and, and we'll play? And I said, sure. So I go down there uh, to this dingy old studio, with a, a, you know, a funky round table with a velvet top on it and, you know, and an ashtray for, for your your joints and, and <laughs> incense, incense burning in the studio and everything. And I meet these two other guys, David Osman and Phil Austin. And it turns out that we're all fire signs, coincidentally. I'm a Leo. Uh, Austin is an Aries. And David and Peter are Sagittarians. And if you look at the cover of our album, I think we're, pardon me, don't crush that dwarf, hand me the pliers. You'll see us embodied in our various astrological, uh, Leon, uh, pardon me, uh, fire sign symbols by an artist named Bob Grossman, who was Peter Bergman's roommate at Yale. Please. So this is what my book is about, all these incredible coincidences. So anyway, we started improvising together. It turns out that the four of us had this uncanny ability to play off of one another and to create different characters almost like jazz musicians getting together and discovering that we, you know, we could, we could get into the groove with all of our different instruments. Okay. And Peter, Peter, the visionary that he was, he said, I'm going to call you guys the Oz Firesign Theater. Is that all right? We said, you know, sure, Peter, it's your show, anything you want. Uh, And the fact is that we started to, to, uh, uh, to, to attract a following. Peter was already famous and at one, uh, so we started doing um, crazy improvisations like the Oz Film Festival where we showed movies on the radio and where we tried to show a, a risque movie on the radio. <laughs> you know, blondie pays with a rent, you know, and, and, and Bergman said, no, you can't do that. We can't show a dirty movie on the radio. And the, 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 the phones lit up. It was the, his listeners calling up saying, you can't censor them like that. Show, let them show the movie on the radio. Let them show it. We can't see it, you know. Uh, and, and that was when we discovered that we had an audience that would follow us basically anywhere. All right. And he created a thing called the Love In. Yes. Which, right, an event in Elysian Park in, in Los Angeles. It attracted 20,000 people. Absolutely. Okay. Yes. Insane. The, Right, the first kind of ga- hippie gathering of its kind, uh, a, 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 a long before Woodstock. I was going to say, but what it, year was the Love In? The Love In was probably sixty-six or seven, something okay. like that. So that was even before, like the Human Being was, which was like yeah. that first San Francisco. That's right, it was and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, but it was definitely part of the movement. Yes, like you're saying, there was, you know, there was something afoot. Something was happening, right? Yes, and you don't. 
don't know what it is, do you, Mr. Jones? Something was happening. <laughs> Villain was happening. Uh, uh, a new kind of storytelling and music was happening. Uh, new kinds of acts. Our Simon and Garfunkel and the Stones were were emerging. Yeah. And and the interesting thing about being a, a Columbia recording artist, which we were, was that at that time there was kind of like a bohemian. Uh, a neighborhood that was was created and we got to rub shoulders with all these people we got to hang out with or meet Dylan and hang out with the stones and 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 hang out with Phil Oaks bless his heart yeah. as you know and other wonderful people of the time uh because we were considered even though we were just doing the, this this multi-layered complicated comedy that integrated music into it but uh, indeed but we were considered to be part of the family Sure. Part of this this new movement, you see, and and that's really where uh, a lot of where, where when I started to change my own attitude about what I was going to do with my life, uh, because this offered offered me an opportunity to be a producer, a director, a writer, a singer, a musician, uh, you know, and and uh, and to have some effect on this the society, the social fabric, the direction of the politics of the time, and where else. Could anybody find so much uh, power, if you will, and so much family at the same time? It was it was just irresistible. And so I shifted my uh, my goals away from a traditional theatrical or film career or television career into this uh, this new. We didn't even know what to call it. The, the Firestein Theater event and where and wherever it was going to take us, I was ready to go along. You know, and that's the thing. You were part of the scene and uh, right. and, and afforded the same opportunities, as you say, as the bands of that scene. And, yep. and yeah, it's it's amazing. Also, um, FM radio, freeform radio, I caught the tail end of it. I told you yep. before we started recording, I'm 52, so I kind of remember, like, the last vestiges of it in the very late 60s, the very early 70s. But, you know, there was that free form for my listeners, uh, stand, from my listeners' standpoint. They yes. did not understand it. You know, yeah, you would. You'd go from a Grateful Dead song to a George Carlin bit or a Fire Sign bit. And, exactly. You know, yeah, so – and and also, um, you know, so, yeah, it, it gives you the opportunity to kind of, again, experiment in this, in this same realm um, on the air – and then also taking it live, what was that like? Because a lot of your stuff, I mean, again, I, I only oh, heard yeah. your records and stuff. So what was it like performing like a lot, some of this audio to, to a live audience? Well, I'll tell you. Uh, we, if you go to the Firesign Theater site, firesigntheater.com, mm -hmm. uh, you'll see that one of the products that we offer uh, is called the Duke of Madness Motors. Okay, And it's a book. Uh, profusely illustrated. It's got a lot of my collages in it as well. And it's the story of our radio years. Okay. And, uh, and each one of us writes about from our perspective, what we remember about that, that time when we were on freeform FM radio for an hour or an hour, two hours a night, improvising together and creating all kinds of crazy comedy. And it also has in it, uh, Something like how many hours? Eighty hours of uh, of our material on an MP3. Oh, that's great. That's right. It's in the Duke of Madness Motors. And if I were back in LA and it was easy for me, I would get one to you right now. I, I will talk about that later. Uh, uh, but it's something I know that you would enjoy. And what we were doing was 
our live audiences would come to the studio and would sit on the floor around us, okay, so that there was always, always the opportunity to, to play to people who were hip to what we were doing. And that helped to inform us, of course, in the kind of stuff that we were playing with because we could see what was working, you know, and it, 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 it encouraged us. Also, of course, to to uh, to play with one another. We also had a, a very inventive um, uh, engineer on one of our shows on, the, I think, the Dear Friends show called the, uh, Earl Jive. And he would drop in sound effects and music unexpectedly on us during our our improvisations together or even our our little scripted pieces that we were trying out. And we'd have to respond to them. That's as well that's right yeah so it was free form in more ways than one and it informed us and helped us determine what it was we wanted to write about in for records because now listen the main thing to know about what we were doing in records was it was uncensored sure okay absolutely yeah because it wasn't really we were not designing it to be played on the air uh you would take it home and listen to it in the privacy of your own room right yes dorm room or under your bed or something, right? So so that gave us enormous freedom uh, to deal with themes and language and ideas that did not have to be, to, to go through any kind of a, a committee uh, or, 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 uh, or, or be framed in commercialism in any way, okay? Yes. It was very exciting. Sure. Liberating. And it's again, coming from radio to be able to do your own thing. Hey man, that's, you know, podcasting as I'm sure, you know, uh, yep. yeah, that's, that is the great feel. And by the way, feel free. I mean, again, as someone that has to work at their daytime radio job, it's always nice. And, uh, you know, language is language is welcomed. Any, any form of language that best describes what you want to say, if it's dirty or not, it's, it's okay here at word balloon. So, well, fuck me. There you go. <laughs> There you go. Thank you. No, no, but you know that language per se, uh, uh, shocking language, uh, was never the reason that we would do things. However, remember we we did that that piece where we used all of the derogatory terms that people had for minorities. Yeah, one minority yeah. had for another. You know, wops and kikes, etc., cetera, sure. etc. Cetera. And sure. we made a musical piece out of it. And. <laughs> Right. And how can you be in two places at once when you're not anywhere at all? Uh, and it was called the American pageant. Right. And it was really it was really when you look at it now, what was it in the late 60s that we did that? It was a celebration of diversity. OK. And, yeah. And it called for it. It, it ridiculed the uh, the the idiocy of uh, calling different minorities by different derogatory terms because they were all minorities. We're all minorities. We're all mongrels in a way. So so that was very liberating as well. And most of those derogatory terms, by the way, are really uh, uh, terms of differentness, endearing. Uh, WAP comes from WAPA, which means pretty. You know, oh, I didn't realize uh, that. That's that's okay. There you go. <laughs> yeah, a, a sheeny, me, uh, which is you know derogatory term for an Irish, comes from the word for beautiful. Sheena, sheeny. I had no beautiful. idea. That's amazing. You see, it's because what the fear of minorities was always that uh, some guy, some girl, was going to call fall for some handsome guy with red hair. Okay, you you know you're Italian. 
there's this exotic guy with red hair who's really beautiful and smart and, and strong and handsome and everything. And your Italian daughter is going to go marry this guy. And oh my God, what are their children going to look like? And what's going to happen to the family? You see, so the, it, it's all about the attractiveness of different races to other people and the fact that we were were destined to intermingle and to and to you know become one race sure. absolutely right we're all we're all the the human species and that's that's the fun of it really absolutely. so anyway, anyway that was one of the things that we we reveled in and revealed but we also made fun of commercial radio and commercial television which was and that kept us off of real television a lot of the time uh, because we wanted to deprogram people from the uh, brainwashing that was going on uh, in uh, commercialism, which is basically, you know, making people buy things. Right. Yes. And yeah. And, and the po politicization, the the, uh, the the war fervor and all of that sure. stuff. OK, so that's why, uh, as you suggested, in freeform radio, they could drop in. Selections from Firesign, which sounded at first listen like, oh, this is a commercial for you know a car dealership. Hi, friends, Ralph Sportsport, Ralph Sportsport Motors, the world's largest used nude and nude nude automobile dealership. Ralph Sportsport Motors here in the city of Amphisema. <laughs> you know, it sounds real, but it's definitely not. And so the next time that they heard Ralph Williams, who was selling cars, which I you know I, I based this character on. They would laugh at him. Sure. They'd go like, "Oh, this is funny. He's selling cars," and and that it liberate again. It was a form of liberation, uh, and is based on, as I said in one of my my other interviews uh, recently, because I'm doing a lot of fun promotion uh, on podcasting and things now. Uh, the main question that we asked in all our albums was in one of our earliest albums, "Don't Crush That Door," and the question is, "What is reality?" What is reality? It's a question which is yelled out by a Latino character uh, to the to the principal poop, you know, who represents the straight world in high school. What is reality, man? You know, and and that's the question that I I challenge everybody to answer. Right? What is what is reality? We all have our own perspectives of that, and I think that uh, kind of. Uh, every once in a while, you have to kind of fact check yourself and see what you think. What is it that you really believe or what is it that you want to believe or what is it you'd like to believe and take a look at, you know, what direction uh, that that is taking you in your life. Reevaluate yourself occasionally. Uh, it's just all a question of perception and self-motivation. Again, that's why I think so much of your material still plays so well today. And I wonder back then, because you guys were were obviously very subversive uh, in 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 the best possible way. Was yeah, like I, was Hoover and the FBI were they did, were there files on you guys? Do you know? Yeah. Um, yes, there were probably more individual files than there were Firesign Theater files. But but yes, we were kind. We were suspect. <laughs> and, you know, and I think it's one of the reasons why we were they kept us off of television. We did do some local TV. Uh, and we were on the David Susskind show. Excellent. And by the way, so some of our visual stuff has been released, which you can also get at the Firesign site. Uh, it's called the uh, Firesign Theater Declassified, Everything You Know is Wrong. Right? And it's, it's a two-DVD set of some of our films and some of our uh, television appearances. Uh, it's like almost eight hours of stuff. And then we're going to be re releasing more stuff 
before we have to send it all to Washington, D.C. for the archives. So, yes, our visual stuff, uh, that which we were able to do, will be out there. But, you know, since this is a show about cartoons and, and graphic novels, oh, please, and all yes. that, right? I do want to mention that I, I had a fun career in cartoons and animated films. Absolutely. All right. And it started with Hanna-Barbera. Okay, because I was in the Smurfs. Awesome. Yes, indeed. I was, uh, 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 what was my character? King Gerard. <laughs> King Gerard with my clockwork Smurf. And there was a spinoff that they did called, I don't know, Harry and Eddie or something. Pee-wee and, Pee-wee and Herman. I don't remember what it's called. <laughs> but, but with Michael Bell. But, but uh, I got to work with great, great artists uh, like uh, Jonathan Winters. Wow. And, Alan Young, and really, it was amazing the people that I would meet when I'd walk into those recording sessions. And I, and I got to do work on all of the stuff that Hanna-Barbera was doing because they were the cartoon factory at the time that I was out there. Sure. This is, early, were, this is early 80s, right? Yeah, the well, uh, 70s. Oh, excuse me, even the 70s. Fantastic. Wow. The Jetsons and Richie Rich and I mean if if you go to my uh, uh, to the IBDM or MD or whatever yeah, it's yeah, called IMDb absolutely IMDb and you look at the stuff that I've done uh, it, it it amazes even me <laughs> well because it's it's impossible to remember all of the little the voices that I did for all the stuff that I did but it wasn't until uh, I got the part of Howard in the Rugrats. Yep later in my career that I was able to to do one character plus a lot of other characters of course uh for 14 years that's fantastic absolutely with a few breaks that was the run of that of that show and I also was able to add voices to uh Disney movies starting basically with the rescuers down under and then beauty and the beast which incorporated the first computer uh, animation in the ballroom scene remember yes indeed Absolutely. Yeah. And then from there into the Pixar movies uh, where I, you know, I was able to do uh, voices for Toy Story and uh, A Bug's Life and uh, Monsters Incorporated and uh, on and on and on. And then also uh, I do the voice of the drunken French monkey in the Dr. Doolittle movies. <laughs> did, you know, I'm a social linker. We did five of those. So, even though I was still doing Firesign Theater, because of the fact that we did voices all the time, I was able to get myself an agent and to and to branch out into these other areas because it didn't require you to go to Broadway and rehearse for two months and perform for five years. You know, you could go in and do your work in an afternoon and then go back to what else you were doing. So it was something that fit into the rest of my recording career and the rest of the things that I was doing. Uh, and, and I could also do local theater, which was great fun because that most of that was in the evening once you got the rehearsals over with. And then, you you know, I could work during the day and then go do a play at night. So I found a really nice niche for myself. And I've been married now for 25 years to my darling wife, Melinda Peterson. And we are in a theater company in L.A. called the Antius Classical Theater Company and have been for, how, what, 14 years, honey? I've been there since 91. Well, she's been there since 91. Very cool. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but we but we get to work together. And and the other thing that we do together is a lot of audio live audio presentations of old-time radio shows. Oh, that's great. Okay. Recreations of old-time radio shows. Fantastic. Yes. yes, we do those at conventions. 
I, we're going to be doing one at the Reps Convention, the Radio Enthusiasts of Puget Sound, <laughs> where, where last year Margaret O'Brien was the guest star there, looking beautiful and, and acting wonderfully, you know. Uh, and, and, and that's a, one way to keep the spirit of radio alive, which is absolutely fantastic. And, uh, and we do the same thing uh, down here occasionally. Uh, in, in a, a, a company called Fake Radio <laughs> that recreates pieces and, and and integrates improvisation into the work. And it's before a live audience that both of younger people and older people who appreciate radio. And we've had some amazing experiences. We, we uh, toured for a while in a show uh, about uh, Agatha Christie's early radio works on the BBC. Oh, wow. called, you're right. Called the, what was it called? The, Agatha, the Agatha Christie and the BBC Murders. Oh, Agatha Christie and the BBC Murders. <laughs> As opposed to the ABC Murders. Fantastic. Yeah, right. And we played down in Florida with that. <clears throat> and it was, <clears throat> and, pardon me, <clears throat> and, oh my, oh my, is it my phone? It was an integrated show uh, that had costumes and props mm -hmm. and music and everything. And uh, a phone like this <laughs> from the audience. Hold on, let me see what this is. No worries. Take your time. Yes. Wait a minute. What is it? Who's calling? Philip Marshall. Oh, Philip Marshall. Okay, Philip Marshall is the producer, writer, creator, director of a piece called Francis Scott Key, After the Song, in, which is a three-part PBS series that's on the air at different PBS stations now. If you go to the site, fskey.com, you'll find out when you can see it. Cool. And I play a major role in it. That's fantastic. I, Go on. I play a wonderful, real, real historical character named John Randolph of Roanoke. Okay, and and he was quite a character. And the, what Phil Marshall did with this wonderful idea, uh, pardon me, this wonderful documentary is that he uh, he interviews the. Okay, the show is about Francis Scott Key's uh, involvement in the um, early movement to abolish slavery in the United States. Wow. Okay, and my character was infatuated with Key and was working tirelessly for this cause because I had inherited over 300 slaves and was horrified at the idea that people could own other people. Sure. Wow. All right. So anyway, that's what it's about. But we are all interviewed these characters uh, as ghosts. So we're speaking in our in, in the real language. Uh, that that has been kept uh, in all this, the books and the transcripts of what these people really said. And my friend Gary Sandy, who has done a lot of these audio presentations with uh, Melinda and me, uh, he plays President Andrew Jackson. He does it absolutely brilliantly. Wow. Okay, and it was because of him that I got involved in the project. I don't know what Phil Marshall's calling me about. But after I finish talking to you, I will call him back and find out what that's all about. So, you know, again, I, I, I've been very blessed in, in my career, as you'll see if you read the book, uh, Where's My Fortune Cookie, that a lot of things, a lot of chance has happened. A lot of coincidence has happened. A lot of, I dare I say, psychic things have happened that have propelled me on my career and led me to the to the point that I am today uh, at the age of 77, still creating and still 
participating in the things that I love uh, uh, and and still actually making a kind of a living at it. That's so. Yeah, it's amazing. It is amazing. And congratulations in doing that. Gary Sandy, for the people listening, may remember him as Andy from uh, WKRP, the leader of uh, the program director of WKRP back in the day. And well, he was he was the boy toy on the show. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we always kid him about that, but he's a wonderful, wonderful actor and a terrific pal. Are we are we pressed for time? Because if you do have to go, I'll let you go. But if we can go a little bit more, that would be great. It's up to it. But I totally understand if because we started late. No, we can go a little bit longer because uh, all I have to do is meet up with uh, Austin Pendleton and Tom Ligon, two of my Yale classmate well two two of the of the people that i worked with at yale and the dramat uh, i haven't seen tom for years and years and years wonderful actor and uh, and it'll be it'll be the last thing that we do here in new york before we head up to west hartford where melinda's family comes from and we're going to end this trip uh, on the saturday night at melinda's 50th high school reunion fantastic uh, what's the name of your high school William H. Hall High. William H. Hall High. <laughs> Very cool. That's excellent. Okay. Congratulations, Belinda. That's wonderful. Back, back to uh, Los Angeles. Uh, for those of you who are interested in the paranormal aspect of the book, which we, we're not getting into too much, and that's fine because there's so many levels to my life. Indeed. Go on. What a- but I will be on Coast to Coast. Oh, that's great. <laughs> I All love right? that show. <laughs> Me too. On Saturday the 21st, I'll be on Coast to Coast, and that'll be – I'll be talking about my UFO connections, my psychic connections, and all the other bizarre things. I'll just share one with you. The the book is called Where's My Fortune Cookie for a particular reason. Uh, Peter Bergman and I, when we branched off from Fireside Theater uh, and toured as Proctor and Bergman – because we wanted to get out of the studio and go out and meet the people. And, and we also wanted to create records that were shorter form parodies. Mm-hmm. So they get more, you know, more play on, by now, commercial radio, right? Because the, the nature of the radio was changing. Uh, and it was, it was harder for people to play complicated fire sign, long, long playing material. So anyway, we're out on the road. And we were in the Golden Dragon Massacre in San Francisco, uh, which was celebrated or remembered, I should say, 40 years ago, September 5th, this year, uh, uh, for being the worst uh, massacre, mass killing in American history at the time, 40 years ago, five killed, 11 wounded. Five killed, 11 wounded. The worst. The worst 40 years ago, yeah. yeah. The worst. Okay. And Peter and I were there cowering under the table, (laughs) and and we survived. And the the aspect of uh, that story that's particularly psychic and weird is that a friend of mine predicted to me about a month, two months before it happened, that I would be in a gangland shooting with foreigners after performing a show with Peter Bergman and that people would be killed and wounded around us, but Peter and I would get, get out. Okay. Wow. Yeah. To me. All right. And of course, Peter uh, said, uh, you know, the next day we had to perform in Colorado and I said, I, I ordered the duck. And Peter said, I ordered the scared prones. (laughs) And then we said, but we never got our fortune cookie. (laughs) (laughs) It's the title. That's excellent. Yeah. yeah, it opens the book. And honestly, as you said, 
really, you've led this rock and roll lifestyle. I mean, it's it's fantastic in terms of the weird uh, turns that your career has taken. But I think a lot of people who want to create, and a lot of listeners really get inspired by the cartoonists that I have and the writers that I have, and, and performers such as yourself, and they want to get into this. And it's really interesting that your career has taken these turns and, and afforded you these opportunities that, as you said, were never part of the original plan. And it's just That's made for such an incredible life, and you document it very well. I mean, really, this book is just outstanding with uh, the stories and the, the cameos by uh, these famous people. Marcia Strassman, a former girlfriend from oh. uh, who played Julie on Welcome Back, Carter, Gabe Kaplan's wife. You know, I mean, oh. uh, you know, I just I I was uh, Orson Welles and Tuesday Weldon, uh, the Henry Jaglum uh, film that uh, you made. That's- yeah, safe place. That's right. That was my my first, really, in my my only major starring role, except Tunnel Vision. I played the head of the uh, uh, of the cable station. Uh, that was a film by Neil Israel, which basically predicted cable television, right? <laughs> and uh, uh, and once and then and then Peter Bergman and I wrote America. Thon. Yeah, I was hoping we'd get into America Thon because I I saw yeah. the film and I'm glad to you know I would love to hear your guys' original take of it because again presaging a lot of i mean you know the gee uh, our our current uh, yeah. bankrupt uh, country yes 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 and and uh, the the gas crisis and yeah. the oil crisis and all this stuff uh, that that film i just finished uh, editing a book about that film uh, on bear manor press that's another place you can go bear manor press or bear manor media i think they call it uh is is a a boutique shop that basically uh, releases books about the radio, the history of radio, and uh, the history of certain screenplays and things. So Peter Bergman and I, before Peter passed away, uh, were working on two books. One of them is called Power, and that's out there now. And it's a transcript of this wonderful, funny uh, 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 radio serial that we did on uh, John Hockenberry's Heat show okay. on National Public Radio, right? It's a parody of uh, uh, the, the the world of agencies and, and movie studios and everything in L.A. And my, my dear wife uh, played prominent parts in it, too. So so the, the quality of the work was excellent. And, and the transcripts of the scripts are very, very funny. And the other book that's going to be coming out soon is called Americathon from the skit to the screenplay. Or the skits to the screenplay, because Americathon came out of a piece that Peter and I started doing called Gothamathon, where we right, we go into a town and we'd say, you know, you guys are going bankrupt. We have to raise money to save your city. You know, get the garbage trucks rolling again, right? And then we, uh, Peter would play this character called Jerry Jerry, who'd been up for 186 hours, you know, and he would introduce all these crazy acts. And, and we'd, we'd go off stage and come back as different people and different acts. And and then we decided to expand it to Americathon, you know, because the country was in trouble. Sure. Right. Neil Israel happened to catch the director and create writer of Tunnel Vision, happened to catch one of our shows because he was out promoting Tunnel Vision. And he said, I want to make this into a movie. And that's where we got involved in the writing of it. At a certain point, we lost control of the project and other people took over. So it's not 
truly a Firesign Theater or, or Procter & Bergman surrealistic project. But nonetheless, it's become a cult favorite because it, it predicted so many things. has a wonderful cast, Johnny Ritter and Harvey Corman and, you know, Oh, yes, Elvis Costello, uh, wonderful people, and uh, uh, Terry McGovern, if you know his work. Yes. And, uh, and it's well worth seeing, again, because of the predictive nature of the film. Remember, people were living in their cars and, and riding bicycles all the time. Right. And oh, yes. my, oh, my God. So, yes, Americathon is worth uh, 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 seeing, and the book is very interesting, too, because I've got transcripts uh, of the the, the Gothamathon show and the Americathon show showing the evolution of how the piece developed and how it inspired. And Neil Israel wrote a wonderful foreword about it. And Steve Gilmore, who filmed Americathon at the, the bottom line when we did it in New York, he also has remembrances of, of what it was like at the time uh, and what and what forces were around that helped to, you know, to, to create the that social idea. So anyway. That's amazing. Well, I, I want you, you know, people to be able to get uh, some of this product and stuff. So you mentioned the Firesign uh, website, mm -hmm. which again is firesigntheater.com. Could be simpler. And then your own uh, site as well. Yeah, well, I'm at planetproctor.com. Uh, and, uh, and basically, I mean, the book is available on Amazon. Yes, Where's My Fortune Cookie is out. It is available at Amazon. It's a great book. It's getting it's getting great ratings, uh, you know. So please like it, and uh, and I think that it's it's starting to sell well. I, I really I wrote it because uh, Brad Schreiber, my co-author, who has another wonderful book that's drawing a lot of attention out now, called Revolutions End, which is about the Symbionese Liberation Army and Patty Hearst's story and all of that. He is not only a serious writer, he wrote uh, the, the, the uh, uh, Hendrix story as well. Wow, Jimi Hendrix story, cool. Yeah, the Jimi Hendrix story. But he also, he's a comic writer and he teaches comedy writing, you know, in school and things. So he was, and he's an old friend, so he's the perfect a person to collaborate with uh, in in the creation of this book, and he really was the inspiration for me to do it. Uh, he said, "You got to tell your story," and I said, "Okay, uh, but I don't have time." He said, "Okay, talk to me. I'll transcribe it." And, and it's been a great collaboration, uh, and I think the result is 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 uh, very worthy. Could not agree more, and really was such a pleasure to read because again, your career has taken all these interesting turns, and also. Your writings uh, have really presaged a lot of things that happened, like you said, tunnel vision with cable and the internet, and uh, you were you know you were of your times and you were also ahead of your times in a lot of your your writing. And I'm really glad that you're still out there performing and stuff, Phil, because uh, it's really it's a it's a pleasure to have yeah. your voice out there and and also uh, your perspective as someone who came up. I just had Kareem Abdul-Jabbar on. And I said the same thing to oh, him. Yeah. yeah. So hey, as someone who, yeah, as someone who has observed the craziness of the 60s to the craziness of now, we, we need mm -hmm. people like you that really have a good handle on it. And, and well, actually, if real fast, I mean, and I, boy, let me let me hit you with the essay question at the end here and stuff. But yeah, com ah. compares, comparing the craziness of now, the demonstrations that are going on now to the, the stuff you experienced, <laughs> you know, 50 years ago and stuff. What's it like looking at it from from both ends like that? I, I feel like I'm in a Mobius strip. <laughs> right. Or I'm on a Mobius trip. It's like it's like the loop de loop, <laughs> you know. I mean, uh, it, it, 
things have not changed. Uh, the, the only thing that's changed is that I'm older and, uh, and, and the, the, the world is, has seemed not to have learned anything from the past, from the past experience. There, there seem to be forces in the world that are progressive and forces that are regressive. And, and the only way I've ever explained it to myself philosophically is because we are, we live in a, a, a dual dimensionality. You know, we have males and we have females and then we have everything in between, right? And we have, we have good and we have evil, you know, and we, we have progress and we have no-gress, you know, and egress. Uh, we live, we die, you know, we come in, we go out. And so everything is kind of like always in conflict of some sort, where it, it should be in balance. You know, the, the whole Buddhist philosophy, the whole Tao philosophy, the whole Western, Eastern philosophy is the balance between the forces, you know, yes. the, the, the yin and the yang. And it seems like the Western societies just don't understand that. They, they, they believe that the, the yang should dominate the yin, you know, yes. <laughs> that, that there, there must be that the, the, the people at the top of the pyramid, uh, you know, should dominate the people at the bottom of the pyramid. Uh, and, and actually, are, even though they're supported by them, right? Yes, you know, Absolutely. Right. And so that's the conflict of culture that we, and, and evolution that we still see. And it creates chaos, you know, which is perhaps the natural state of, of humankind, you know, and whether we ever achieve any kind of balance or any uh, kind of, of loving uh, acceptance uh, it, I, it remains to be seen. I would be delighted if I began to see even the beginning of it before I had to leave for another dimension and, and, and face other problems in the in the universe. But for the most part, uh, uh, even even in the, the world of UFOs that I investigated, the story seems to be that the tall, spindly ones are the fascists, and they use other slave aliens in order to you know power their to to get around the universe. And the little the little guys with the big eyes and the big heads, they're the they're the ones who believe in universal love and they want balance in the universe. So even in the stories I hear about UFOs, there seems to be this this yin and yang thing. Well, look, we've got you know the black holes and and the red dwarfs. I yes. mean, you know. You know, I mean, even in if you in our under, in our slow, slowly evolving understanding of the nature of the universe itself, that the the being is as important as the nothingness, right? I hear you. Absolutely. Without the nothingness, the being would be all together, and we'd be in another big bang, right? Sure. <laughs> Once the big bang happened, everything goes flying out, and there's space again, <laughs> right? <laughs> so I don't know the answers to it. I honestly. I just don't know, but uh, but I'm I'm in, I, I've, I've always been amused to be here. I feel I've always felt like a stranger in a strange land, and uh, and I, I've enjoyed I'm enjoying uh, being able to observe it and to you know pass my judgment on what is reality and to ask important questions and make up answers. I, if you will. I hear you, man. No, what is reality exactly? That's where we're we're come full circle and it's that same question and yeah i wasn't expecting answers i really was expecting more what you just said so that's that's <laughs> terrific and again i'm glad i'm glad you're there to observe and interpret and 
share your point of view with us. Well, I think I'm here, I, I think I'm here to absurd, John. <laughs> to absurd. <laughs> Where's My Fortune Cookie is the name of Phil's autobiography. Again, it's available now on Amazon. And it's been a pleasure, sir. I hope you'll come back when you have something I'd new to promote to. because uh, we, we've barely scratched the sur- surface. And I've, I've really enjoyed uh, investigating uh, other interviews with you. My, man, those series of interviews you did on Comedy on Vinyl were a pleasure to hear. Oh, yes. Oh, you know those. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. I, I have to do some more. He wants to go through, you know, my reminiscences of every album <laughs> that Firestein did. And I think I better do it before I forget, right? <laughs> well, again, most of the story that we get from Where's My Fortune Cookie is absolutely worth reading. And, uh, oh. again, Planet Proctor and FiresteinTheater.com to uh, keep tabs on uh, the group and specifically uh, Phil Proctor. Really appreciate your time today, sir. It's been a great pleasure talking with you, and I look forward to our next encounter. I'm telling you, the Fireside Theater were my comedy Beatles, and uh, man, what a what a pleasure to talk to Phil Proctor. Where's my fortune cookie? The autobiography available now through Amazon. Uh, pick it up; it is so worth reading. So many funny stories, and uh, cannot wait to have Phil back on for another round of Word Balloon because, as I said, there's so much more to talk about. You know, next time we'll talk about the animation and uh, more Proctor and Bergman stuff as well. Uh, I Honestly, what a great career and I'm really happy to uh, share with the guy today. Thanks again for listening to Word Balloon, brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners solely today because, uh, you know, this is a comedy thing and uh, it, uh, like I said, I think uh, he, uh, he deserves your support I would say, uh, you know, go out and buy some uh, Firesign Theater material. Check it out. It's online. You can find stuff on YouTube to sample and and see what kind of great stuff they have. But, uh, you know, really, uh, these guys really had comedy down and were innovating in such interesting ways. So I hope you uh, enjoyed the conversation today. Thank you again, League, for your support. Uh, If you want to subscribe to Word Balloon, you can go to patreon.com slash wordballoon or the ad on the front page of wordballoon.com. Uh, We'll talk again in a few days. Uh, We've got more uh, interviews to uh, share with you uh, through October. And uh, didn't record much at uh, New York Comic Con. Didn't have the opportunity to, unfortunately. It was more of a networking trip. And I'm glad I did because, as I said, I made some, uh, as I like to say, good love connections. So we got interesting interviews coming up in the uh, days and weeks ahead. So uh, keep it tuned here to Word Balloon. I'll see you in a couple days. Have a nice weekend. Until next time, Word Balloon is a copyright feature of Shaky Productions. Copyright 2017.